Good morning. It is, what time is it? It's 11 minutes before 7 o'clock. You're listening to, I'm a little shy to say, KCAW Sitka. I'm Daryl Rakoff with Raven News. The Coast Guard Air Station Sitka and other crews will be conducting search and rescue exercises this week around Sitka. The Coast Guard said in a statement released on Thursday that Sitka and Kodiak Coast Guard Air Stations, a Royal Canadian Air Force Squadron, and the Juneau Army National Guard are among the crews scheduled to gather. Sitkins should expect increased helicopter operations uh, today through Friday. Crews will focus on honing basic rescue techniques and executing mini-scenarios. They'll end the week with a mass casualty response exercise. Commander Vincent Jansen, who is Air Station Sitka's CO, said that Sitka's Air Station is eager to collaborate with partner crews. Exercises such as these allow crews to learn best practices from each other, practice integrating efforts, and strengthen organizational partnerships. Joint training exercises with Canada were paused for several years due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but efforts to renew collaboration began again last year. Earlier this year, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration proposed listing the sunflower sea star as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. The proposal comes as disease has wiped out billions of sea stars along the West Coast, including many in the areas around Sitka. As KMXT's Kirsten Dobroth reports, the agency is now asking for public comment ahead of its decision. Sea star wasting syndrome is one nasty bug. When it infects a sunflower sea star, one of the largest kinds of sea stars, it causes blister-like lesions and the creature's legs to fall off, killing the animal within 72 hours. What's left behind is essentially a pile of goo where it disintegrated. And then the ocean currents carry that goo away, and 10 days or two weeks you might have absolutely nothing remaining of the animal. Sadie Wright is a protected resource biologist with NOAA. She says the mortality rate is 90% in some areas of the sunflower sea stars range, spanning from Southern California out to Southwestern Alaska. And billions of sea stars have died from the disease in the last decade. NOAA received a petition back in 2021 to protect the animal under the Endangered Species Act. In March, the agency announced it was proposing to list the species as threatened in response, and now it's gathering public comments as part of a review process that will decide whether the sunflower sea star will ultimately be listed as threatened or not. Wright says the agency is hoping to fill in data gaps about the species, particularly in the waters off Alaska's coastline. We have some data. We have really good uh, data, time series data in a couple of places, but it would be great to get a, a broader perspective. Wright was in Kodiak earlier this month for a public hearing about the species as part of NOAA's review. About a dozen people attended, another dozen called into the meeting. Some fishermen said they noticed a dip in the population a few years ago. Recently, though, more healthy-looking animals have been coming up on their gear. Wright says that fits with other reports NOAA has received from the area so far. It does sound like uh, Kodiak is having a, a relatively strong recovery of sunflower sea stars. So that that definitely gives us reason, I think, to be hopeful. Researchers don't know exactly what causes sea star wasting syndrome, but Wright says they don't believe it's related to fishing activities. Take would not be prohibited under the proposed threatened listing. 
Longliners and fishermen using pot gear most commonly encounter the sea stars. Wright says anyone can submit information or input on the process, and it's all helpful. Photo submissions are even better. We're asking people going forward if they could provide a measurement from the center of the animal's body out to the tip of its longest arm. Members of the public can submit comments to NOAA through May 15th. If the agency issues a threatened listing, the soonest it would go into effect would be March of next year. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobrath. A master fabric artist and basket weaver from Ketchikan led a workshop in Petersburg last week. KFSK's Shelby Herbert has the story on Kathy Rousseau, an artist who combines basket weaving styles and materials from southeast Alaska and Central America. Kathy Russo came to Southeast Alaska for a job with the U.S. Forest Service in the 70s. Then, in the late 80s and early 90s, Russo was one of the first students who learned traditional raven's tail weaving, which had been lost for 200 years. So the main techniques I use are twining and knotless netting in my work. And the twining is the techniques that are used for the traditional Northwest Coast basketry and the raven's tail and chilcat. Russo was mentored by legendary weavers in Southeast Alaska, like Dolores Churchill. She went on to teach the technique for indigenous organizations across the Southeast. Russo says weaving helped ground her during her husband's recovery from a liver transplant. You know, one good thing is I can weave anywhere. When my husband was in the hospital, I wove in the hospital in his room the whole time I was there. There's a whole series that I did of baskets during that time. Russo is a non-Indigenous person and is hesitant to explain the difference between raven's tail and chilcat weaving for fear of misrepresenting a culture she doesn't belong to. Deborah Ogara says the weaves are similar, but raven's tail came first. Ogara is a Petersburg-based tribal government scholar and artist. Her Tlingit name is Jiksuk, and she is a raven of the Teton clan. She's weaved for 15 years and has her work on display at the Juno Douglas City Art Museum, though she still calls herself a beginner. She attended Russo's basket weaving workshop. So Raven's Tale actually predates Chilcat, um, and it's woven from left to right on warps that are made out of mountain goat wool that's been processed and spun into warps. The warp is the yarn stretched out vertically on a loom before the weaver passes more yarn, or weft, horizontally through the fabric. Ogara says that out of the raven's tail style evolved the Chilcat design. And um, what happened is the process of form line, which is indigenous to this area, and the weavers, they started doing curves and ovoids and circles and weaving in both directions, left to right and right to left. Another difference between the two designs is that the raven's tail warp doesn't contain yellow cedar bark. Deborah says Southeast Alaska weavers are dealing with a shortage of yellow cedar. According to the U.S. Forest Service, the species is in decline across its range due to something called fine root freezing injury, which happens when low snowpack exposes the tree's roots to lethally cold temperatures in early spring. Ogara says the yellow cedar shortage has inspired some weavers to experiment with new fibers. Russo brought plant materials from Central America for her students to work with. But I think the one that was the most interesting was the materials that they were using to weave. They were using those big, wide leaves that come off the, um, oh, I forgot the name of the plant. I don't know, Agar- 
Uh, agave? Agave. Yeah, yeah. The agave plant. She brought some of that with her that we, then we were able to use for a weaving project, which was really fun. Russo specializes in backstrap weaving, a type of traditional weaving that originated in South and Central America. She learned these textile techniques during her time as a Fulbright scholar in Guatemala. From then on, I every year basically have been going back and forth between Ketchikan and Guatemala. I learned about hammock making, horse gear, all sorts of other things made from agave fiber. But Russo has always gravitated towards baskets. Ogara says she was excited to see all of the different styles Russo picked up from weavers in Central America. I think every society, every country has people who do weaving. So it's a it's a universal language. It's a universal um, activity. Ogara is a former judge, and she's currently researching pre-colonial Tlingit justice systems for her PhD. Through her research, she's learned that for Tlingit and Haida people, the traditional practice of weaving is about storytelling. Many of our weavings, carvings, were really living documents that memorialized or recorded historical events or um, relationships or were made to help commemorate a, a solution to a problem. So our weavings are our living documents. Ogara says she hopes to incorporate her practice and study of weaving into her research project, not only to learn how people solved disputes before colonization, but to see if any of those practices can help develop present-day tribal justice systems in Alaska. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. And that's Raven News for this hour. I'm Daryl Rakoff. You're listening to KCAW Sitka. We're going to rejoin NPR in just a moment, but first, let's talk about, hmm, what was it I wanted to talk about? Oh, I know, at the intersection of Lake and Lincoln Streets this morning, I noticed as I walked to work very early, just for y'all, that they were starting to make that lane change uh, on southbound Lake. So you might keep that in mind as you're making your way to wherever it is you're going today. This is the 8th of May, and it's Monday, too. How's that? Um, 7 p.m. tonight, a talk from the Alaska Volcano Observatory will occur. They'll give updates on the Mount Edgecombe low-level unrest. That'll be at 7 p.m. in room 229 at the University of Alaska tonight. Thanks for joining me this morning. This is Morning Edition on Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. The time is one minute after 7 a.m. and we're headed into NPR and statewide news following this. You can expect partly sunny skies in Sitka today. Isolated rain showers, however, highs around 50 with light winds. (laughs) 